Okay, so one thing I do want to include in the episode is that Canadians are my favorite medical physicists. <laughs> I just always have a really great time with Welcome to the Hormesis Podcast. Tonight I'm here with Nick. Hello. My co-host to talk about, well, my experiences at the AAPM annual meeting 2019. Uh, so I was the only one of the podcast hosts who ended up going to the meeting, which was sad. Well, I'll tell you, there's a reason for that. <laughs> I think all of the three other of us are saving up our opportunity to go to the, to the 2020 AAPM meeting with the COMP in Vancouver. So Yeah, I got that a lot from a lot of friends. <laughs> it definitely felt like a smaller meeting this year. And the exhibit hall especially was tiny. And I heard from exhibitors like, oh, well, we've already been in San Antonio twice this year. <laughs> so I think people all around <laughs> were just ready for next year already. Um <laughs> So I just wanted to recap a couple of my favorite sessions and tell you my two cents about stuff you probably don't care about. <laughs> uh, so I got there early on Saturday to participate in some working groups and subcommittees and stuff. If you ever want to get involved with a working group or subcommittee at AAPM, all you have to do is show up. They will assign you stuff even if you don't volunteer. So you're looking at a proud new member of the working group on imaging for treatment response assessment. <laughs> um, but that just is in, fantastic. Oh my gosh. And that's, that's also absolutely a great way to meet people too. That's uh, for true. any, you know, residents that are um, out there or people, you know, just graduate students who want to become residents. There's, you meet the people that are running those programs and you meet people who want people interested in doing work just by being there even if you're not looking this year or something be careful about attending to look for next year <laughs> that's what i was trying to do <laughs> i was gonna drop something before joining something new and that didn't work out so well <laughs> uh but it's it's a really great way to get involved um so then on Monday, we had the President's Symposium, which was all about diversity and inclusion. And to be honest, I was really skeptical going into this. If you've been following the BBS or even to some extent, I think the listserv, we, there's been a lot of mixed result or mixed responses to having diversity and inclusion being one of the goals of the AAPM. And so I was concerned about how they're going to approach it as the President's Symposium. That being said, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, the way that they decided to approach it was from a generational gap standpoint. So look, saying, okay, in this room right now, we've got baby boomers, Gen Xs, and millennials. And we all have different styles of communication and expectations from like leadership, that kind of thing. And so that's something that everyone in the room could relate to. Whereas if we said, it sucks being the only black person in the room, going about it from a standpoint where everyone could kind of relate to we're different but we need to be inclusive and be able to work together was i thought a nice approach i wish that there had been more about the difficulties that physics has with diversity and inclusion 
especially, you know, bringing up racial minorities and to some extent females. So one of the statistics that they brought in was that AAPM is now, I think, about 25% female. And within like the millennial age group, it's almost 30 or 40% female. So it's higher in the millennial age group and it's lower in the baby boomers. So it's nice to see. I would really like to see a degree breakdown. So something that I at least anecdotally hear is that women tend to get master's degrees and go clinical as opposed to pursuing, you know, research careers and getting PhDs. That's definitely a discussion that Andrea and I have just have thought about having in the future for a future episode. So let us know what you want to hear about diversity and inclusion in the future from us. So I kind of wonder as well about that, that um, what the numbers are compared with general physics. Are we doing a better job of being inclusive than academic physics programs are just in general? And I think it's hard to argue that against the idea that having more diverse viewpoints and having people from every walk of life in our field is not beneficial. And it, it was one of the, the points that we brought up at the discussion of uh, closing down the alternative pathways to getting board certification, that we lose a little bit of the diversity that the field had in terms of experience. Absolutely. By restricting it. And that diversity and that ways of thinking by coming from different viewpoints isn't just, did you have a uh, Bachelor of Science first or did you come here from engineering? It's you know, what has your entire life experience been up to this point? So the next session that I really liked was also on Monday, and it was innovation in medical physics education. So as someone who is interested in going to academia, I have tried to get some education classes and vague experience. I have not had the opportunity to TA or anything like that, unfortunately. And so I really like to see what other people are doing to kind of update methods I don't know about you guys, but a lot of my classes were taught as kind of old school lecture styles where professors are kind of reading their slides to you, which, you know, got the information across, but how can we do better in the future? And so one of the things that I thought was really cool, and I have no idea how to include this in graduate education, but it was done very well in a residency setting, was they had an objective structured clinical exam where they brought a student into a room and said, here's your patient, here's the problem, what are you going to do? Go. And so then they were evaluated on a lot of different levels, including, you know, like physics knowledge, which is what you'd expect, but also, you know, how is their professional interaction, their patient care, not just looking at physics skills, but also your transferable skills. Yeah. And it was both a really good teaching tool and a great way to assess the student. So I thought that was really cool. And I want to spend some time thinking about how could I set up something like that in a graduate education setting. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And education is, is a super interesting part of the field. The next two sessions that I really liked were both about funding, more or less. Um, actually, both about NIH grants. So the first was the NIH grant writing workshop, which happens every year. And this year, they took a slightly different approach. In the past, they kind of say the same thing, which perhaps isn't super useful, but it's a big subject. So this year, they focused mm -hmm. on academic industrial partnerships. I have lots of notes about it. I don't have anything too specific to say about that. <laughs> That's interesting. Do, do you think that the focus on academic industrial partnerships is representative of the decrease in funding that we've seen to NIH programs over the past you know year and a half? Yeah. Due to a political environment? I think it has to do with both that and 
at least this year, every time you see a 10-minute talk or a longer talk, almost everyone had industrial partnership funding through Varian or through GE or, you know, there is a lot more of that than I think I've noticed in the past as well. Did they discuss in this session the sort of ethical and research constraints that puts on the research that's available? No, not too much the ethics. They did talk a little bit about, you know, how do you build the right kind of team and how do you not sound too risky or not risky enough, <laughs> mm-hmm. et cetera, to be able to get that money, if that makes sense. Yeah, how do you present yourself to the industry patrons? <laughs> to industry and to the NIH, because the money's actually coming from the government in these cases. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the other session I went to was people who currently have NIH grants presenting about, you know, how many tries did it take if I got triaged? Did I totally scrap it or did I, you know, edit it and resubmit it? One of the big things here was key personnel. As physicists, we don't think of necessarily needing MDs on our grants because it's, well, I'm an expert in the physics problem but you need to have the disease expert or whatever. So one thing actually someone brought up, they needed an implementation expert. And he's like, well, I know how to put stuff in the practice in the clinic. And it's like, no, you need a specific software guy. There's like 30 people in the country and you need one of them. So that was really cool. And it was really nice. So it was kind of 10 minute talk format, but you got to see a wide variety of research that people in our field are doing that's getting funded. So I would highly recommend checking that out if you mm-hmm. like to watch stuff through the virtual library. I thought both of those sessions were really nice. That's excellent. Yeah, the virtual library is a big benefit if you're a WAPM member. Absolutely go and check that out for any of the, these sessions. So hopping back over to the diversity and inclusion topic from before, I thought that the women's lunch this year was amazing. In the past, it's sometimes left me as kind of like, oh, it was good, but I needed to get something else out of it. And this year, it was just really good. Ahead of the meeting, we could submit questions and then upvote or downvote as we saw fit. And so the panelists that they selected could really hit on these kind of big topics that it's hard for us to talk about in other settings. Especially as medical physicists, a lot of times you're the only woman in the room, if there are other people in the room. (laughs) If you're at a small clinic, you're the only person in the room, of course. And so having a room full of women at this conference (laughs) is just always really great. But this year's panel was just above and beyond in the topics we got to talk about. I'm hoping that the conversation is going to continue while we're not at the meeting. It tends to be that, you know, we get this two hours every year at the meeting and that's your two hours for the year to talk about women's issues at AAPM. So I'm hoping that we can either do newsletters or BBS threads to kind of answer all those questions that we had on the app that we didn't get to. And that would also open it up to people who either Mm can't attend the annual meeting or even I know a lot of men don't attend the women's lunch because it's called a women's lunch, but it's really about how do you bring diversity and inclusion into your clinic and the gender ratio allows for this to be an easier thing to address than other diversity issues that we have so that's my two cents about that (laughs) that's excellent i'm glad to hear that i i had not actually even considered that i would be invited to come to the women's lunch i think that would be a really interesting we need you to be there you need to be a part of this diversity and inclusion thing it can't just be us you know we'll get into this more during our diversity and inclusion episode someday but i think it's really important to have people who don't consider themselves to be diverse as part of this conversation so that you know how to support people who are the diversity element, if you will, 
Yeah, it's, it's very much like PFLAG, which was you may not be part of a questioning gender identity, uh, but but you are a parent, friend, or a loved one of someone who is, and you're there as support. Everyone needs to be at this table. So that was one of the things that Cynthia kept saying at the diversity and inclusion yeah. thing, was that everyone needs to be at the table and have a voice, and that was bringing in people of diverse backgrounds. But on the converse side, when you're talking about diversity and inclusion, everyone needs to be at the table, including, you know, your straight white males who we don't think of as being the diverse person. But they have to be there. They have to know what's going on. They have to know how to support people who are not being supported currently, all that kind of stuff. And I think your point is just to that. Yeah. All right, last session. So I went to, I think, just one session about adaptive radiotherapy. So something that always strikes me about clinical realities is when you're first learning about medical physics, you come in with, like, your assumptions, right? And so one of my assumptions about radiotherapy is, Mm -hmm. well, if the tumor changes shape or, you know, shrinks or whatever, you would replan so that you're hitting the tumor and not, you know, you would adapt your radiotherapy. And of course, that's not what they do. We always think that the clinic is better than it is, I guess. There's two things that I really found interesting about adaptive radiotherapy. And I, I don't, I'm not an expert on the field. I know nothing about adaptive radiotherapy, quite frankly. But first of all, it's not clinically proven to be good or better. And so I'm really excited for those clinical trials to be published. They talked about the Art Force clinical trial being finished soon. I'm hoping in the next year, hopefully next year, WPM will see results. And the second thing is that there's different types of adaptive planning. So like there's functional and then there's anatomic. And when I think of adaptive planning, I think anatomic. But this functional is really interesting. Yeah. I think that's going to be a future episode as well so that I can learn more. Oh, I, I absolutely think so. I, I would love to, to jump in with some stuff, but I think that uh, I think that that's such a deep topic that so it's a whole episode where everyone, I think, have a chance to weigh in. But to your idea of that you imagine the clinic to be doing much more than typically does um, from your, your educational and, and research experience. Yeah, I think that comes down to that most clinics have just enough Right. People to keep their heads above water and not to implement the newest stuff uh, until it's been proven. And it takes a long time for things to get proven. One of the things with adaptive radiotherapy is that people are doing it now, but it's not been proven. And they're doing it off clinical trials. They're doing it just in everyday practice. And that's also maybe not scary, but is it the best thing that we should be doing? Yeah. I, I, was that some of the things that they discussed in that? Probably. <laughs> It was one of those talks that went till like 6.15 and you're like, okay, I'm ready to be gone from this now. (laughs) 6.15 on Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Uh, I was just thinking that that, that's, you know, I I didn't want to step on any toes. But yeah, the idea, as long as you have something justifying something reasonable, justifying the approach you're taking, I think, and, and adaptive therapy does have something reasonable that we believe the targets changed and we can we are already decided and have shown that targeting just to the target instead of large areas around where the target may be gives equivalent outcomes Mm -hmm. you know imrt then the idea that well we should continue to target to just the thing that's the target throughout the course of the treatment has some logical underpinning and so it's all right to to do that without the data there to say mm. that it's all right to do that from the get-go. But we do need the data there to show that it is, in fact, just as good. 
before we build entire, uh, uh, you know, clinical uh, practices out of it for wide-scale use. Justifying that would be showing that it, it has at least equivalent outcomes, and hopefully you can show that it has better either you know, normal tissue tolerance or it has better outcomes. Yeah, I could see this really having the biggest impact on normal tissue sparing, fewer side effects. Yeah, which was ultimately the, the reason to go with IMRT. IMRT allows dose escalation, so maybe you get better control on some things, but primarily it lets you give the same dose that's been proven to be effective, but spare a bunch of tissue around it. That's really all I had for sessions that I attended. Uh, I went to a bunch of other stuff, but these were the ones I was most excited about. I guess, actually, I'm going to give a shout out to the session I moderated. So one of the working groups I'm in, the Working Group to Promote Non-Clinical Career Paths for Medical Physicists, because that's easy to remember. (laughs) We did a Breaking Out of the Clinic Non-Clinical Careers in Medical Physics session, so look us up in the virtual library. It was a really good discussion. I wish they'd give us longer than an hour, but we just decided to take it out of the room and have another discussion for another hour. So <laughs> I'm really proud of our work with that. Which, you know, I, that's awesome. I, I think that the that exact thing, the take it out of the room, that's what that's what the annual meeting really is all about, is being able to, you know, you're, you're not just going to listen to a talk, which you can get on the virtual library, you can get in any number of formats. It's you can listen to the talk and then, hey, you know, let's let's go out, have dinner and talk about that thing and, and get, you know, seven or eight people together who are really interested in it and come up with huge new ideas or, or incremental good ideas for, for any topic. Absolutely. One of my goals that I'm not very good at for the annual meeting is to not eat lunch or dinner with my lab mates in theory. I want to eat all my meals with people I don't get to see every day. And this year, especially, I really failed at that. But next year, I think I'm going to try and be a little bit more proactive about that. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. Because, yeah, you, you get to have lunch with your colleagues all the time. And this is an opportunity to uh, <laughs> inject new mimetic DNA, if you will. If ideas are um, viruses, then these are an opportunity to inoculate your group with all new viruses of the mind absolutely to to go back to the getting a whole bunch of people together has a positive effect there's this network society and networking idea of of human interaction that there is an exponential growth to the amount of information and amount of efficiency that can be achieved by having people concentrated together it's the reason that cities exist at all is that concentrating people into one place makes things advance rapidly. It's, you know, I guess you can think of it like uh, supercriticality. You get enough people neutrons together, you, you start to get things popping off. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Was that just a little bit dorky? <laughs> so one little teaser... We are planning to submit a symposium request for WPM next year to have a live stream of the podcast. So please let us know what you would be interested in hearing from us at that. So without further ado, this has been Allison. And Nick. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Please let us know what your favorite sessions were at WPM this year on our Reddit page. Take care. 